Hey everybody! It's been a while, hasn't it? I took a bit of an uncharacteristic long time to sit back down and record something. I hope everybody's doing alright. You've had a bit of a, a, a break away from me. It's been about a month since I last posted something. So I, I wanted to get back into the game and I didn't want to leave anybody waiting anymore. You know what, I've, I've been looking over my catalog, and it's not been that long, but I've noticed recently that a lot of ideas I get for topics for the podcast stem from me watching random YouTube videos that I come across, and an idea pops into my head, much like with today's topic of discussion. You've read a title of the episode, so you know what I'm going to be talking about. So let me set the stage for you. It's about three weeks ago, around 11 p.m., I'm exercising, and I'm watching a YouTube video to distract myself from the horrible pain I'm feeling in my legs. And before you even say it, yes, it took me that long to write a script. I know, I'm not the fastest typer out there. It's the creative process. You gotta let things marinate for a bit. You know what I mean? Whatever, I got a life. Sue me, I guess. So, whatever. This video... On YouTube, I was watching it by a YouTuber named Tara Mooney. Hilarious creator, I've linked the original video down below. It's titled Jubilee, The Pioneers of Empathy. A great video on a side note, highly recommend you watch it. But so I was watching this analysis and deconstruction of all these things about this YouTube channel Jubilee. And I don't want to dwell on it for too long, so I'll cut to the chase. This analysis showed a clip from a Jubilee video relating to strangers rating someone's intelligence based on their Instagram account. Which is already such a weird idea to me, but that's irrelevant to the discussion. But what struck a nerve in me was the person, I don't want to specify any characteristics, as that's completely irrelevant, you don't need to know who they are. But they remark that they thought the person being rated in the video was less intelligent because they did not post about injustices and racism on their Insta. Now their comments could have been perfectly benign, well-intentioned even, but for some reason that came off performative and somewhat insincere. Now why do I say that I feel that the comment was insincere? I feel like it exemplifies this mindset that commodifies positive actions as a social currency that we continuously work to acquire and enjoy showing off to others. It's similar to those YouTube social experiments where they have somebody dress up as an unhoused person and ask people for help, and then they show their society has an inherent prejudice against people that are struggling without offering any new insights, or at least giving the profits from AdSense or sponsors to, you know, shelters and organizations helping people in need. It's just people benefiting off the misery of others. And that's where I jump into performative activism. Now, before I dive in and speak about performative activism, I want to first familiarize you with what performative activism is. Now, Wikipedia the source of all knowledge, says that performative activism is a pejorative term, referring to activism, done to increase one's social capital 
rather than because of one's devotion to a cause. Now, what does all that mumbo jumbo actually mean? When we talk about social capital, we can be referring to a multitude of things. But in our social media case, you could say that social capital is pretty much just your likes, your shares, your interaction. But most of all, it's visibility. You're probably asking yourself. What's visibility in the context you're talking about, Luca? And I'll tell you. When I talk about visibility, when I on performative activism, I'm saying that it's about projecting an image of an ally that is fighting for a cause. So you're creating this image that you are an ally to a cause, and you're fighting for that cause. And that's what I mean when I talk about visibility. But performative activism. Has always been mostly linked with surface-level activism and performative allyship, meaning it often only serves to improve one's image in the eyes of the people, and not to actually serve the cause you're fighting for. I want to read you two quotes by Jeff Ihasa. Sorry if I butchered that, but I'll get into what Jeff said in his article. A T-shirt is not a protest, which is linked in the description. Jeff writes. One of the most crippling tendencies of modern liberals is their obsession with being seen, whether it be at a protest wearing a fuzzy pink hat alongside Madonna, or in a viral tweet totally owning the president. And he continues on, this preoccupation with optics is more often than not frighteningly self-centered. And he continues. And from performative activism to a fixation on clever protest signs, modern liberals know better than anybody else how to cash in on a political movement, but they know very little about how to harness the power of one. End quote. It's a pretty poignant and stark reminder of the issue plaguing the subject. Of people believing themselves to be good people, but oftentimes they lack the resolve to actually involve themselves actively with combating these issues they've raised. You're often centering yourself rather than the message, and you're spreading cheap symbolic gestures and catchy rhetoric. The term performative activism itself has been increasingly used since the protests surrounding the murder of George Floyd. Its increased usage can mostly be attributed to people criticizing others for mostly surface-level social media activism, such as the sharing of infographics without actually engaging in the message, or throwing around buzzwords without fully understanding what they mean, or actually explaining them to people. Which reminds me of a TikTok I saw a while ago, which was parodied quite a bit. It's this person saying that cisgender, heterosexual black men and white women are quite similar. Now, looking at it only a surface level, it might read as reductionary, ridiculous to some people even, which means people took the piss and made fun of it. But I believe this is a great example of one of the issues with. Social media activism, which is that often people do not possess sufficient knowledge 
or better even, sufficient understanding to convey the required message to make a point. I don't mean to insult the person that made the original video. I believe they even posted a few more videos trying to explain what they meant. But that was already far too late. People already discounted their opinion due to the video not conveying the message clearly enough. But this person was touching on something important, which is intersectionality. They simply worded themselves somewhat poorly. You know, we're humans, we make mistakes. But they did have a point. And I would like to speak about intersectionality for a bit, as I feel it's an important topic that more people should hear about. And I've included an article by Vox in the description which talks about intersectionality and includes an interview with Kimberly Crenshaw, the professor and legal scholar that coined the term back in 1989. It includes the origin of the theory of intersectionality, which it describes according to Crenshaw, and how just fixing laws isn't going to change deeply rooted systemic and cultural issues. Because it won't change the institution that enforces the oppression of people. It's a wonderful article that I highly recommend anybody read. But I'll give you a bit of a TLDR about intersectionality. Intersectionality can be considered a framework by which we aim to combine multiple aspects of a person's political and social identities to give us an understanding of the modes of discrimination and privilege they experience. It takes numerous things into consideration such as gender, sex, race, class, sexuality, caste, religion, disability, physical appearance, health, and many other factors. It aims to demonstrate that all of these factors have an intrinsic effect on how people experience the world around them and how it affects the discrimination and privilege they experience. Such as when people say that white-centric feminism isn't true feminism because it excludes the lived experiences and realities of women of color and immigrant women. Additionally, it's why TERFs trans-exclusionary radical feminists are often, and in my opinion, rightfully shunned. These things aren't jabs at feminism. Calling out TERFs and white-centric feminists doesn't aim to reduce the importance of feminism. It aims to expand and highlight the importance of standing up for all women, not just the ones that make you most comfortable or the ones that look like you. All women. I can make an entire episode about intersectionality. Maybe I might. If anybody's interested in hearing more about intersectionality, let me know. Because it's an incredibly interesting and nuanced topic. But let's return back to performative activism and social media. Now we all know social media is inherently performative. We're creating a persona of ourselves to share with the internet. And that persona, more often than not, doesn't fully reflect ourselves, does it? It's more often than not something more of an idealized version of ourselves and our life. I am certain there are plenty of things you do not want to post on your social media, right? So oftentimes, anything we do post relating to activism can come off as performative. There's this song and dance about utilizing social media in protests and activism. It's complex and nuanced. So I don't want to ascribe anybody an opinion 
that they have to have. But I do wish to highlight a couple of things that I feel I should mention. Now, as I've previously mentioned, oftentimes, messages posted on social media boil down to someone repeating buzzwords without any real message behind it. The way I see it, there are two sides to the social media activism coin, which represent two extremes that are usually polar opposites and often can seem to connect. On one side, we usually have the well-meaning, but often not fully informed, sharing oversimplified or condensed messaging. And on the other side, you have people with extensive knowledge of issues that overcomplicate the content they publish and alienate their base. Both are damaging to the cause, but both always mean well. Neither of the groups are inherently bad. Neither believe that what they're doing is wrong. But neither really is moving us along. Half-hearted explanations of issues with buzzwords aren't going to convince anybody to join you. But neither is regurgitating complex theory that nobody understands without extensive understanding of literature and history. Marketing change and revolution is not easy. These issues are seen in many circles of social justice and equity, be it in leftist, feminist, or even queer spaces, or many others. Without understanding whom you're talking to, you lose so much of the nuance necessary in imparting understanding onto others. Let's take an example such as the political slogan, No Justice, No Peace might seem like an easy-to-understand slogan, such as people chanting it during protests in Minneapolis, wanting Derek Chauvin to be held accountable for the murder of George Floyd. But there are more layers to the slogan itself. It has been around for a couple of decades. There's a historical element to it. It's not just about a single incident. It's about all the violence against and murder of people of color by police. It's not just geographically locked, it's applicable to many countries. It's not just about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Dante Wright, Ahmaud Aubrey. It's about all the people of color that the police have murdered. It's about the systemic racism and discrimination that people of color face. It's deep and nuanced. It's not just about one thing that's occurring. It stands for all the injustices occurring. And there are plenty of other ways to interpret the slogan. The slogan itself is a great capture of the zeitgeist of our current age. But sometimes movements can be halted by mismanagement or misguided actions. Take Blackout Tuesday. I'm certain if you have an Instagram account, you remember Blackout Tuesday. Last year, June 2nd, was the day around 29 million people posted a black square on their Instagram with the hashtag Blackout Tuesday. It was supposed to symbolize business as usual being paused, and people were acknowledging police brutality against people of color. But the original intention wasn't to post black squares. That's not really how you disrupt business as usual, is it? It was originally a movement or initiative, more more likely, called the show must be stopped. 
created by Jamila Thomas and Brianna Agiamang, two black music label executives. The intention was for June the 2nd to be a day to start reflecting and discussing the exploitation of black culture by people in the music industry, as well as police violence, racism, and discrimination black people are subject to. At no point was there a suggestion of symbolic gestures, but the initiative asked people to reflect on issues, educate themselves on topics within the discussion, and that people donate money or time to causes and businesses. But along the lines, things happened, and people started posting black squares on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm not going to act like I'm above anybody else. I did the same thing. I also posted a black square with the hashtag Blackout Tuesday. But I didn't just want to post a black square on my timeline and leave that being it. I also wrote a piece of text in which I describe how I, as an immigrant and a queer person, have experienced discrimination and hate before, but I'll most likely never come even close to understanding 1% of the pain and suffering that most people of color have to go through, especially because I'm white and male presenting. I included links to petitions, to organization, bail funds, all of that. I wanted to provide as much information as I could in that moment. I wanted people to at least be able to take a first step, be it for donations, be it to sign a petition. But does that somehow make me better than anybody else? The people around me? But also posting black squares? No. No, it doesn't. At all. Do I genuinely think that having posted this shifted anybody I know's opinion? Most likely not. Why would my two posts about needing change really genuinely influence anybody? I'm just a single person with a couple of friends on social media. So after a while I decided I had to delete the post because they felt so incredibly performative to me. I was well-intentioned and I genuinely believe that sharing this type of information could at least help somebody in my friend group be more aware of what's occurring. But after actually reflecting and looking at that post for an extended period of time, it just felt like performance. Like I was trying to prove something. It felt empty, meaningless. It felt like screaming into the void. A lot of people don't care about upsetting or changing the status quo continuously living in a state of inaction. This is by no means a call out to anybody I know. We live in a society that pushes us to make certain choices that are hard to deviate from. And that includes plenty of everyday decisions we make and involve things we deal with daily. Most clothes we'll ever buy are produced by either child, slave, or unfair labor. The produce we buy and eat is most likely not farmed, harvested, or sold in an environmentally conscious manner. And it's hard for us to change those small decisions. Those choices aren't made easy for us. We often feel lost in a vast and complex sea of decisions and actions that are hard to commit to, as they can be incredibly expensive, inaccessible, and certainly classist in nature. I don't, and am in no place to, 
judge people for making these decisions and choices. As for many people, the ability to make these choices is not given to them, as they are inaccessible to them due to economic factors and other social, or even geographical, factors. But when it comes to social media posts, it often feels as if it's people rushing to tell the world and people around them that they aren't racist. And many do it in such a tasteless way as memifying the death of a person, such as with Breonna Taylor, where people rush to make tweets that end on the sentence and arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. How is that benefiting the movement? Yes, obviously we need to arrest and charge the killers of Breonna Taylor. But what are we gaining by randomly tweeting something meaningless oftentimes and adding the sentence and arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor? It all feels so performative. And then many social media influencers saw Black Lives Matter and the protest as photo ops to parade around the fact that they truly care about the mistreatment of black people. But then after snapping a couple pictures at a march or a protest, they promptly leave without actually truly standing with people to actually send a message. And talking about celebrities and social media personalities, why don't we think back to 2016? When Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem to protest police brutality, where was that same energy from companies and celebrities back then? Some definitely did bring the energy, but for many, it didn't seem convenient back then. But now, 2021, that the zeitgeist and general consensus says that it's normal, good, and beneficial to support Black Lives Matter. Everybody stands behind the movement. Now it's convenient for brands, organizations, and celebs to, you know, say that Black Lives Matter. And are we really gonna accept the bare minimum these corporations are putting out there? They can post all they want. But posting without actual action behind it brings us absolutely nothing. Don't get me wrong. The monetary support and exposure some companies are offering the movement, the funds, the groups, and associations fighting the good fight out there are amazing. They're great. But once again, it all just boils down to it looking very theatrical and performative. They're trying to gain social capital by standing for social justice. We see it often enough. Publications talking about which companies are progressive and stand for social justice. And those are the companies people push us to shop with, support, to invest money into. That just sounds like these companies are gaming the system for us to continue putting money into them. It doesn't really seem like they care all that much. And since we're talking about people and organizations, why don't I give you an example of how performative activism can be? Many selectively choose which parts of issues they wish to support. Say a person is an advocate for Black Lives Matter, but then they turn around and say they won't support trans and queer black people. 
It's not about some black lives, it's about all black lives. Same as people saying they're feminist, but excluding trans women from discussions and activism. Trans women are women. Feminism fights for the rights of all women. It's people saying they're allies of the queer community, but then peddling rhetoric from groups such as LGB Drop the T. You're not an ally, you're a transphobe. Same for people invalidating non-binary and gender non-conforming people. You're once again not an ally. You're a bigot wearing a flimsy cover of an ally. Performative allyship is not true and genuine allyship. To add on to that, we have to talk about privilege. People need to recognize their privilege. Recognizing and tackling the origin of privilege allows us to dismantle the system which upholds it. For many, anti-racism has become an aesthetic, devoid of any genuine emotion and desire for improvement, because it's uncomfortable for them to face the reality of the situation. It's looking at your whiteness and understanding that it facilitates and gives you immense privileges in society. Now, some may say, well... There are plenty of poor white people that are having a difficult time. Where is their white privilege? And that's a bad faith argument that misinterprets the meaning of white privilege to fit its shoddy narrative. Having white privilege means there are no systemic cards stacked against you. No institutional roadblocks that will make your life more difficult. No societal influences that will lead to you losing out on opportunities. People telling you to be scared of equality and equity are scared because they know they will lose out on the privileges that the system awards them. Having all the cards be stacked in their favor, getting off with a slap on the wrist when they commit a crime, having public opinion always think the best of you. Losing all these systemic privileges these people have been awarded throughout time in memoriam scares the living hell out of them. Because they fear the day that they will be treated equally to the people they once oppressed. And this reality isn't comfortable. This topic isn't comfortable. But then we have these infographic and visually appealing posts popping up on Instagram and Twitter with information about these issues and other problems occurring around the world. And I hold no animosity towards the people posting these and creating these infographics, but the product they're putting out there, I just can't shake the feeling that it acts as a commodification of pain and suffering. And I've linked a video by a great YouTuber, Amanda Mary Anna, on the subject she dubs Instagram Infographic Industrial Complex in the description, which I feel summarizes this commodification point quite well. I've now at length talked about a lot of things surrounding performative activism, but you might have noticed a certain through line. I'll give you a little bit of time to just quickly reflect on all I've said. It's all primarily US-centric. And I came at this topic very deliberately in this way, because I want to highlight something I've gathered from the original statement in the Jubilee video, 
and a lot of things I've seen be posted about the subject. The person talks of activism in that video, but only for the police violence and discrimination against people of color in their country, the United States. It's this notion that people always have to be aware of what's occurring in the United States. Well, yes, obviously the U.S. is an important country. Of course it is. But it's not the center of the world. Not everybody on the internet is American. And there are a lot of other things occurring around the world that require attention. Be it the mass incarceration of Uyghur people in China, the military coup in Myanmar, or the police and protest bill in the UK, and the murder of Sarah Everard, as well as the situation currently in Colombia, or the war crimes currently being committed against Palestinian people, all of these need attention. There are battles on multiple fronts, and nobody can fight all of them simultaneously. And certainly nobody can be fully informed about everything occurring around the world. And the expectation that we constantly have to be sharing all of this information can be both overwhelming and detrimental to causes. Okay, it's now time for a 180 degree turn. Although I have been bashing social media activism for the past however long I've been talking for, there are certain merits to using social media for activism. There are undoubtedly a great number of people on social media that are using their platforms positively. And I've highlighted quite a few of them in my previous episode on TikTok, in which I include the ads for some people I feel like are using their platforms to really highlight issues, talk about them, and educate people and spread resources. And I also mentioned how TikTok was a powerful tool for organizers to get people together for protests during the Black Lives Matter movement last year. Social media activism can also be a gateway for people to start learning about things and discussing topics. Issues only arise when activism starts and ends on social media. What some people would call genuine activism, you know, donating money and time, or going to marches and protests, can be extremely hard or even impossible for some people. Now, why do I say this? Well, first off, we're in a global pandemic, I assume you've noticed, where large gatherings of people will usually result in a large number of sick people. Now, that's an important consideration that needs to be in the back of our mind when we think about these things. There are a lot of people that are either immunocompromised or live and interact with people that are at high risk of complications with the disease we're currently dealing with. That's a pretty big risk for many that made protesting last year life-threatening. Having the possibility to interact with resources such as live streams and information on social media was the only way for these people to participate. There are plenty of informational live streams and YouTube videos that donated all money that was raised to organizations fighting injustices. So that was an avenue for some people to indirectly, or in certain understandings, directly participate in these movements. Your housing and familial situation can also complicate things, especially for young people. If your housing relies on your parents, and they don't agree with you, 
they might not hesitate to throw you out of the house. We see it plenty often enough with queer people being thrown out of the house. Some people care more about their political leaning than their own children. A lot of people don't have a support network that could help them out if a situation like that were to occur. Not everybody is privileged enough to have friends that can just pick them up if something like that were to occur. So we have to have these considerations at the back of our mind. Also, your employer could cause quite a bit of an issue for you if you want to per participate in some forms of activism. Employers first and foremost wish to protect their image. And any form of activity that could be considered disruptive could be a reason for termination of employment. Now you might say that's illegal, and you can't do that, but we see it occurring all the time, and companies go unpunished. You, my dear listener, may be morally incapable of accepting to work for a company that doesn't share your ideals or limits the way you can express yourself. But for many, that's not a privilege they possess. We know hundreds of millions of people around the world live paycheck to paycheck. They can't just up and quit their jobs or risk being fired. Most people don't have a rainy day savings fund which they can tap into to bridge them over until they find another job. Not getting that job, not having that money can mean that they lose their housing, they lose their insurance, they lose all the things around them that protect them. Not everybody has the privilege to be as vocal as you might be. It doesn't make them any lesser than you. But if you are in a position where you can call out racism, I implore you do it. You know, get that one distant racist uncle of yours and say, Look, Randy, shut your racist mouth up. Nobody wants to hear your race realism theories. This is the reason why Aunt Cheryl left you and took the kids. Oh, and don't be that person that badgers your black friends about their experience. They're not your personal encyclopedia about discrimination and racism. There are plenty of resources out there for you to read and watch and learn. And I've mentioned anti-racism a lot in this episode, so I just want to quickly, before we wrap this up, explain what I mean by being anti-racist. Now, a lot of you might think, oh, that means I'm not racist. But that's, there's so much more than that. Being anti-racist means that you actively work on combating racism around you. You call out people you know that are being racist, even if they're your friends or even your romantic partner. And I know plenty of people say they can fix Tyler, Brad, Chad, or Blaze. I just need the time. And that's not a dig at women that think they can fix their boyfriends. It's just making him change from saying the N-word with a hard R to the N-word without it isn't really fixing him. He's still a racist piece of shit. And it's not your fault. And I'm not trying to say specifically that if your name is Tyler, Chad, Brad, or Blaze, you're a racist. It's just that the other frat named boys are pulling you down. You could always try and go call them out. That could probably save your name again and we're not going to be associating it with frat boy racism you, who knows you might be the saving grace for all the other frat boy named dudes think of it you might be a hero for all the frat boys out there 
Oh, and the same goes for all the Britneys, Lexies, Maddies, and Beckys out there. You could absolve all your sorority sister named comrades out there by just calling out racism in your sisterhood. You're both equal opportunity offenders. We know all you frat and sorority people love being like, oh no, we're not racist. We're just an elite group of select people that come together to like party and like live university life. Same thing for all the chats. Like, no, bro, we accept everybody. It's not like we're trying to like be excluding other people. It's like we're like so hardworking and we just want to be like a community of bros. Yes, I know those impressions were horrible. Don't kill me. Just trying to have a little bit of fun at the end of a long episode. I assume you people are aware of the fact that this episode might be like 45 minutes long, but it, in actual recording time, it's like an hour and a half. I just have to cut out a bunch of like silent dead air and me stuttering or misspeaking. So like it takes a long time to record these and I just want to have a little bit of fun at the end of this. And I just want you guys to be a little like humored by me trying to make a joke, you know? I know I've said it before, I am not a comedian. I'm not trying to always be funny. But, you know, I'm gonna stop rambling. I, I think I've talked enough. So I'll just leave you with my last couple of thoughts. Activism, in and of itself, does not have to be grandiose. It can be done through small personal choices, such as supporting local minority-owned businesses responsibly. I don't want you to disenfranchise the original clients, like we've had for a period of time with, like, silk bonnets and stuff like that, where white people are infringing upon spaces and disenfranchising the original minorities that benefit from these businesses. I want everybody to be responsible in the way they shop, in the way they support businesses. I, I've seen articles where people talk about supporting minority-owned bookshops and then expecting Amazon levels of customer service when it's just like one or two people managing an online web store and a physical location. Everybody, please be responsible about the way you approach these types of things. You don't want to end up being a gentrifier. That's just pushing out the people these businesses were originally intended for. Okay, now listen up. This one's very important. Educate yourself about what's going on around the world. Don't feel pressured to constantly post about it or constantly share information about what's going on. You know, have conversations with people that are willing to talk about these topics and that are able to further expand your horizon on these topics by having these conversations and talking to people. You don't have to feel pressure to understand everything that's going on, but having conversations with people around you, even if they're not the authority on all subjects, it can help you formulate ideas and also familiarize yourself with topics surrounding these issues. But importantly, on that note, exercise critical thought and analyze things that you're hearing and reading. You know, you have to be willing to further expand your horizon by researching and discussing things. You don't want to end up listening to crazy conspiracy theorists or going on to false and fake news websites. 
So critical thought is highly important in that aspect. Always think is there a bias here or people trying to push a narrative and be aware of those types of things when you're researching and reading and discussing things. This one's a bit of a controversial one, but eat less meat. We know that the meat industry is one of the largest polluters and water users in the entire world. So by consuming less meat, be it red meat, white meat, whatever it may be, you're lowering your carbon footprint, you know? Choose a couple of vegetarian or vegan options that you can have once or twice a week. That's already enough to make a small little change that can have a big impact because we have the power of a group. We're 7 billion people around the world. If you have the option, the opportunity, try a couple of vegan and vegetarian alternatives to your meat-based products. It can always be you discovering something new, a new cuisine, a new product that you might end up enjoying. And by doing that, you're effectively lowering your carbon footprint. Isn't that great? And you might become healthier. You know, that's a great thing in my opinion. Also, follow the mantra of reduce, reuse, recycle. You know, shop secondhand more often. Try to look for ethically produced and environmentally conscious brands of clothing, but also just items in and of themselves. You know, there are plenty of secondhand shops that sell amazing furniture pieces that are still perfectly usable. It's such an important thing for us to not fall into the trap of over-consumerism, where we always feel like we have to buy new things. It all plays into that idea of plant obsolescence and those types of things. We have to be aware of that, and we have to be more conscious about how we approach our shopping habits. You know, small things can have big impacts. You have to be open for change. And... With those closing remarks, we've once again come to the end of another episode of the podcast. As always, I've linked my sources and resources in the description. I've also linked the website for The Show Must Be Paused, which includes amazing resources, but I've also included numerous useful websites for donations and educations. Please check them out. They're great. They're amazing. I've linked a bunch, be it for the ACLU... Reclaim the Block, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, the Community for Justice Exchange, the National Police Accountability Project, Stand Up to Racism, the Green and Black Cross, and other multiple uh, resources under the blacklivesmatter.cart.co website. So please do check them out. And with all of that, I wish you an amazing rest of your day. Bye!